Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. But first of all, no doubt about the big story. It's not a, a surprise, but it's still in some sense, is a great shock to the system if you're a racing fan. And all you've known growing up with racing is Frankie Dettori being at the top of the sport. Let's hope he will be for another year to come. But when it gets round to Breeders' Cup at Santa Anita at the beginning of November 2023, that, God willing, will be his final appearance in the saddle. His last appearance on these shores will be Champions Day. He announced this on ITV yesterday. Uh, the news has been reverberating around the racing world. And last night, I was able to catch up with him to ask him exactly why now he'd made the decision. Well, obviously, um, you know, after talking to my parents and my wife and my family, um, you know, I decided that next year was going to be my last mm -hmm. Uh I, um, you know, obviously the first one to tell, I had to tell John. And then I had to tell some member of the staff and then I had to tell some other people. So the, the, the news was leaking out and I thought I might as well just say it because I left to say it sooner or later. So, um, yeah. And also because I just uh, made my 52nd birthday. So I thought, well, it's appropriate that I can tell everyone now that uh, next year is my last. How important is it to you that you still feel good, you still feel fit, you still feel like you want to ride racehorses? Presuming that you do feel all those things. Yeah, well, that's the reason why I decided that this year would be my last. I still physically feel very good. And I want to finish at the top. I want to finish on a high. I want to finish that I'm still uh, good enough to compete with everyone. And uh, yeah, so it you know it was a very difficult decision because my heart wants to carry on forever, but my 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 brain tells me, look, if you're gonna do this properly, uh, you know, you know, you you gotta pick one year, and I think next year uh, is the right one because, like I said, I still physically feel good, and I can uh, you know give it one last good go and and enjoy and give the public what they want, what they want to see. What did your parents and, and Catherine say when you, when you ran it by them or, or told them? Well, they were quite pleased. <laughs> I, I wish they weren't actually. So it would have given you a, a more option to carry on, but you know, they were very pleased. Dad the same. He said, listen, uh, you know, I completely hundred percent behind you. And, uh, you know, I want to, uh, finish my career when I'm 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 still playing on the field, not uh, being put on the bench like you know, for a classic example, Ronaldo last week. You know, 
so I wanna now then I still have good horses to ride, and I'm still feel good. I thought, yeah, let's call it the the day next year. How important was the back end of last season for you? You know, you had that wobble with John in the middle of the year. You got back on terms. It seemed like you had a bit of a point to prove. You suddenly started, every time you go to the races, you know that something dramatic would happen or you'd ride a group one with it. How, how important was it to have that period of kind of consolidation in September, October? Well, exactly, exactly then, Nick. I know when, when, when you look back, you know, I, I've got uh, Cialdini is one of the favourites for the Guineas. Uh, well, Comitina John, she's one of the favorite for the 1000. Then, uh, you know, uh, Ispilo and Emily Ob John are staying in training. So it's a lot of kid to go to war with next year. Obviously, Kier Ross is a Gelding, he's staying in training. Lazu of my friend Mark Chan and Andrew Rosen. So, you know, it's, it's, it's appropriate for me that I feel that I can go out with, with a bang. So, uh, that's why it was important that I had a great end of the season. So it gave me a lot of confidence to to take this decision. How clear are you feeling in your head? It's a weird, it must be a weird feeling. Uh, 36, it's going to be nearly 37 years of, of riding racehorses, knowing nothing else. Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, I was asked the same question by some of my friends. I said, my biggest problem now is where I'm going to put all the tact that I've accumulated all these years. <laughs> I mean, I like, must have dozens of saddles everywhere. Now, look, um, I'm, this, I, I'm very pleased that I made this decision. As you know, next week, uh, well, this week, actually, I'm going to California. I'm going to start Boxing Day. Uh, it actually, it's quite ironic. This is where I started when I was 16 years old, at Santa Anita. So I'm looking forward to a, a very competitive winter. Is a new challenge for me, but something that I'm looking forward to. And then I'll be back here for the spring. And, uh, you know, and, and it will be, it'll be a lot of hard work. I've, I've got a, a lot of things to prove. And and there'll be a lot of uh, uh, goodbyes and a bit emotional. But uh, first and foremost, uh, I want to do my very best and, and, and go out with a bang, like I said. So... Uh, you know, it will be my last guineas, it will be my last derby, my last Royal Ascot, whatever. But like I said, I, I think I've got enough kit in my armour that I can uh, finish on a good note. It's Fingers crossed, I'm going to stay in one piece, obviously. Yeah, uh, obviously, that's the most important thing. I'm interested in, in just the mindset of the California project and then, and then beyond that. Because when we spoke earlier in the year, you were saying, you know, I, I'm not doing this because it's some kind of great big testimonial or whatever. I'm doing, I'm not, I'm not playing at it. I've actually got a bit of, as you said, a bit of a point to prove. I want to win a ton of grade ones and be right up there at the best. Are you going to keep yourself pretty busy in, in the States? 100%. Listen, uh, it takes some commitments where, I mean, I've been keeping fit. Obviously, I've been a bit of a chicken. I haven't been in the stables yet because it's a bit too cold for me. But I've been training really hard for America. Uh, I had to forfeit my uh, Christmas uh, lunch with my family and I'm going to actually start Boxing Day. So that takes some commitments. But, you know, my family is behind me, knows it's my last year and they all want me to do well. So I, I, I'm given a full commitment because you can't do it half-hearted. And uh, yes, I am really looking forward to it. The, that, that's my first challenge. And then uh, when we get to the spring, is you know, obviously it's, is the Dubai and the Guineas and so on and so forth. So, so one step at a time. Yeah, and if you could win a if you could win a Guineas for for John Gosden as well, that'd be that'd be quite interesting. It's a race that he's he's not had that much luck in down the years. He's only won one 
thousand guineas. So that's a, a bit of a target. You've got Chaldean in the in the two thousand as well. How how good a horse do you think Chaldean is? Well, he's very tough. He's done nothing wrong. Uh, he won the Champagne in good style. He won uh, the Jewels, which is always a very good gauge for the Guineas. Uh, you know, he, he'd be up there in the betting, and uh, he's a he's a Franco Colt. Then uh, you know, he's they seem like they're getting better with age. I am very much looking forward to it. Um, we're still m- months away, so but you know, it's nice to dream, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, like I said, that's a good incentive to have for the last year. I, I, I was talking to um, Chris Wall, who's just stopped being a trainer earlier on today, and um, sort of said to him about retiring. He said, "I'm not retiring. I'm just stopping training training racehorses." Do you feel a bit a bit the same? I'm not retiring. I'm just stopping riding horses. I can't imagine the word retire sits particularly easily with you, does it? Given your energy levels, it will be it will be a shock of the system, but I'm I'm preparing myself for it, and obviously, I would say. Ascot Champions Day could be my last in England or maybe a, a family one in Newmarket, that's where I'm from. Uh, and then, you know, really, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like Breeders' Cup, Santa Anita could be possibly my last public ride. After that, it'd be a period of getting used to, of not, you know, not be riding races anymore. And then... Yeah, it looks next year, well, the year after, you know, uh, you know, hopefully find something to do with the press or the media, uh, talking about, you know, keeping fit and riding out, maybe is a possibility as well. But I, I, I'm not I'm not looking beyond uh, my riding yet. I think uh, I'm going to focus and give my complete 100% on next year because I want to make it count. Um. Is there something that you would really like to do that doesn't involve? Win- well, <laughs> uh, well, in racing, I love to win the July Cup because I'm, I'm a new market boy and it's the only group one I ever won. So hopefully, Lazu or uh, Kiros might yeah. make it there. But um, no, no, look, uh, I, I like I like to finish in one piece and uh, on a good note. And then uh, it's just job done. When you look back on on all of it, I mean, it's it's a ridiculous body of work. Have you got you? You're nearly at three hundred Group One winners, aren't you? Group or Grade One winners? Yeah, close. I don't know. Yeah, I'm very close. Yeah, yeah. but you know, look, we we can talk about my career when I stop. But now it was just uh, just to inform everyone that uh, yeah, look, uh, it, it is going to be my last year. I'm, you know, I want to enjoy it. I'm going to give my everything and. Uh, I hope you, you get behind me and, uh, and give me a good farewell. I welcome in my first studio guest this morning, a man who last made an appearance on Luck on Sunday on the 19th of January 2020, just before the pandemic. At the time, he was still chief executive of the carpet firm Carpet Right. He had been managing director of uh, Corals, uh, a little earlier, I put it to him at the time that he might be a contender for the chief executive job at uh, at the BHA, which had just been vacated by Nick Rust. He refuted those suggestions, but lo and behold, up he has turned as the chair now of the Racecourse Association that makes him once again one of the most powerful people in the sport of British horse racing. He is, of course, Wilf Walsh. Wilf, good morning. 
Thanks for that introduction, nice to be here. <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I wasn't far, too far off the mark. You've returned to the corridors of power, and I don't think you anticipated it. Uh, I, I hadn't. It wasn't. It wasn't in the uh, in the plan. But I, I had a phone call uh, over a year ago now uh, and met up with the uh, the RCA board and uh, and here I am as as chair and pleased to be here. So why did you accept the role? Um, I really uh, I really like racing. I mean, you know, I haven't really got much else if I think about it. <laughs> um, uh, and I thought there was an opportunity to uh, to become chair uh, to work with uh, David Armstrong and the RCA board. We've got a good team of people. At Ascot, and um, thought we might be able to affect some meaningful change, which we'd been working on over the past 12 months. Okay, so taking you back to your January 2020 interview, I know it's a little bit cruel, this, but you were. <laughs> it won't stop you. You were, <laughs> you were a big fan of city racing. Yeah, did I say that? Yeah. And what else did I say? You said you were a, you were a big fan of the five day Cheltenham Festival. <laughs> yeah, did I? Very good. Um, and you did say, though, you thought that a woman may become the chief executive of the British Horse Racing well, Authority. I managed to get something right. And when I'm wrong about something, I change my mind. I don't know what you do, but I mean, uh, yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for reminding me of that. But the five-day Cheltenham Festival is an interesting one, because mm. now you're seeing it from the other, the other side of the fence as, as chair of the RCA. So you've sort of seen the inner, the inner workings of that. Can you see why what then you proposed as a perfectly sensible proposition became so such a sort of a key area of consternation in the sport. Well, it's about the numbers, really. I mean, at the time, <clears throat> to be fair, as I remember, I said the fifth day uh, would work if the numbers stacked yeah, up. Yeah, you did. So commercially, it's, um, it, uh, it would make sense. I didn't see why there was such a furore about people discussing it, which they were then and they were again this year. Clearly, Nevin and the team at the Jockey Club have done the numbers and they don't stack up. So four days it is. That's where we're at. And you think that makes sense now? Yeah, it does. And if the numbers don't stack up, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, 1992, it's the economy, stupid. You know, so if the numbers don't work, then, uh, then, don't, uh, then don't do it. One <coughs> aspect of your, of your character and, and one aspect of uh, your rhetoric since you've taken the role, I, I think, has been to try and project a, a more optimistic outlook for mm -hmm. the sport than, than some of, some of your, your colleagues. Do you still carry that optimism into 2023, given the climate that we're in? Um, I, I do. I mean, I think uh, I'm positive about um, the governance changes that we've made. Um, and over the past year, I sat with Joe, uh, the, the chair of the BHA, and Charlie Parker, the thoroughbred group, and that chemistry is good, and we're sort of working hard. And we've landed uh, in conjunction with um, you know, all the groups, primarily the RCA and the participants, with a, a new governance structure, uh, which is in place. And we've sat down, and there's a... There's a uh, a new strategy in place, and we saw the strategy update uh, last week, and we'll keep people posted as that as that develops. The downside is the economy. You know, we are facing into a, a deep and long-lasting recession, whether we like it or not. I don't think racing can uh, insulate itself uh, from um, the problems people have with disposable income in the same way that you know restaurants are struggling, cinemas and theatres are struggling. And we saw the retail numbers last week down 0.3% uh, for November. So it would be wrong for racing not to, to, to believe it's different from the rest of the economy because we're not. So I'm confident about the work that we're doing as an industry. I am, obviously, like everybody else, nervous about the financial outlook. Given your high-level retail background, you're perhaps best placed than anyone else to understand where racecourses' pricing points should be. How do we ensure that people can still go racing and, and, and price it realistically? 
Well, racecourses are <clears throat> are doing a lot of work on that. I mean, you look at during the summer, Arc did a, a promotion with um, uh, the Sun newspaper. We've seen Chester go out with £10 tickets. We've seen go racing in Yorkshire. And the, and the Yorkshire course is responding to that. I think racecourses are really sensitive to that price point, not just about getting people in, but then how do you get them mm. to grow their transaction value when they're when they're they're on course so this occupies the mind of race courses all the time and race courses get a lot of criticism for entrance fees and also for the, you know, the price of a pint of guinness etc but i think race courses do price themselves uh, assertively based on their local markets and and it, you know it's really difficult it's a really difficult balance between getting people through the doors getting bums on seats and creating a pricing structure uh, that encourages people to spend more money when they're on course. But this occupies the race courses all day, every day. It's not, uh, it's not a new phenomenon. Do you see enough effort being made? <clears throat> I, I, I think um, I do. Um, I, I really do. I think race courses work incredibly hard on local marketing, on ensuring they've got their pricing strategy right to get people through the doors, and ensuring they get the pricing right when they're in. Uh, on the race course to spend more money. When you go to the races as a race mm. girl, which you do because you're a racing fan, yeah. you have a, shares in a number of racehorses, I know you really enjoy it like the, the next guy and the next woman. What do you want more of and what do you want less of as a customer? What I want more of is what I saw at um, Sandown Park uh, three weeks ago. I went as a civilian uh, with my brother celebrating his 50th. So I went on the... You know, mm. on the train That's what I mean. Yeah, and, and I, you know... Uh, and, um, you know, went with him as a sort of litmus test. And what I found at Sandown Park was, you know, a great welcome when you landed at the course. No queues when you're going to get a pint of Guinness. A pint of Guinness which was priced pretty well when I went, we went back into London and had another pint of Guinness mm -hmm. on, on the way back. Uh, and a friendly course and a course where you can see everything that's going on, great paddock, etc. So you want that experience where you feel as though you're being well treated, that the pricing's right, that the viewing's right. Uh, and actually, on that day, the racing was right as well in terms of you know the quality of racing and what we what to, got to look at. So, you know that whole package. And in racing, we we have that balance where we're trying to appeal to a new audience. This mantra we always want to get mm -hmm. new people in to try the product, but we've got to look after our existing aficionados, of which I consider myself uh, one. And that is that sometimes a precarious balance in terms of meeting the yeah. needs of two groups of customers. Yeah, and this has been another uh, very central theme of what you've said mm. in this job and outside this job about yeah. the sport being the sport being outward-facing. Yeah. How is the new governance structure of racing going to make the sport more outward-facing? Well, look, um, there's a lot been talked about um, the BHA leading the sport. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've made the point and have been picked up on it that I expect the BHA to lead it on behalf of their their shareholders. I think the problem for the PHA in the past is that the shareholders haven't been able to agree on what the direction should be. So I think now we're in a, a position where the shareholders have agreed what the direction should be. And you can see that in the strategy update that we issued last week. And part of that strategy is how do we, apart from growing the income of the business, is how do we appeal to fans? How do we appeal to uh, the aficionados? And how do we appeal to new audiences? Mm -hmm. And there's a clear focus on that, and that's shared. So, I mean, you know, two simple things. If I take priorities for uh, racecourses, bums on seats, uh, priorities for maybe the ROA would be more syndicates, getting people uh, into micro-share ownership, and syndicates, and, and regulating syndicates at some stage. So a number of activities 
to engage people right across the gamut as part of this uh, as part of this strategy. And I think there's a clear focus on what we need to do. Okay, so if you've given the BHA a, a stronger mandate to lead on your behalf, because you are a stakeholder, a key mm. stakeholder in the BHA, um, where are the areas where <laughs> the racecourses and the thoroughbred group, the horsemen, where are the areas that they fundamentally agree now on the direction of the sport that they didn't agree on two years ago when we last had this conversation? Well, I wasn't around. Uh, I wasn't around two years ago, so I only comment on where we are. Okay, but where are the key areas of, of consensus now that enables the BHA then to lead? Well, the consensus is on how do we grow the sport? What mm. are the main levers to grow the sport? Okay. So one of those would be the levy, and that comes in two parts. How do we grow betting volume and turnover through the levy? And part of that is having more competitive racing as an example, and the other one would be levy reform. So it's what are those big levers that are going to move the dial financially? Um, and I think there is. I mean, we had a two-day, um, much maligned two-day um, strategy session in a very warm and uh, cheap room in, uh, in London. And across those two days where we had all the major stakeholders from <coughs> excuse me, racecourses and the thoroughbred group, not one disagreement on policy or direction of where we go now. You know, there may be some. You've bump. been in the game a while. I know there may be some bumps in the road, but at this stage, I think there is consensus about what we need to do, and now it's about getting the BHA lined up to do it. Welcome back, Wilf Walsh. Still with me, the chair of the RCA, flanked by Luck on Sunday regular Neil Channing, and I'm delighted to say very good morning to Paul Struthers. Paul, of course, you'll remember as the former PR man for the BHA and then chief executive of the Professional Jockeys Association. And it's about a year since you were last on the show, isn't it? A year to the day. It probably would be certainly to this this Sunday last year. Yes. And everyone will remember that that was one of the unhappier chapters of the of the PJA when we were unravelling the the Bryony Frost mm. Robbie Dunn case and and ultimately led to you leaving the organisation. How have you been since then? I've been good. I've been good. I, I was not in a in a in a good place at that point in time. Um, looking back on it, almost certainly getting to that point of I, you'd, whether you call it burnt out, whether you call it exhaustion, whatever it was. I think when you've Certainly in racing, post-COVID, whilst everyone started working from home, it was pretty relentless and it would have been the same for, for the team at the RCA and all the other stakeholders where it was 50, 60 hour weeks almost every week. Um, and I always saw the PJA job, jockeys are non-stop, you know, seven days a week, long working hours. And I always felt you had to almost live that role. You, you know, it's not nine to five at all. So that all built up. Um, so yeah, I, I, I resigned, and so for the last year, it's it's been really interesting. I took a few months off, which I really needed to to kind of get your head back together. Um, some interesting stuff during that time because I had um, it was up and down. The first few weeks off, it was brilliant. You know, you were off. There was no pressure. The phone wasn't going. No email filling up your inbox, um, and just kind of really just letting go of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of strangely miss getting over 100 emails a day and the phone never ringing at all hours and holidays constantly being interrupted because there's a jockey somewhere who's in some form of strife. Um, so I had some therapy courtesy of the Injured Jockeys Fund because I was very up and down. So that was really interesting. Um, and yeah, since then, so April, getting in touch with all the headhunters, starting to look for, for jobs. I've done a couple of projects. Um, 
and then for the last two, three months, become a qualified football referee, been doing my coaching under 11s football, cricket, um, and then for the last couple of months, really focusing, I've decided I'd take the plunge and start up on my own, so really focusing on launching a, a consultancy in the new year um, under the Moya Sport banner. So it's been a really interesting year. I've learned a lot about myself. It's been because um, it's the first time since I left university that I've had anywhere near this amount of time off. It's a it's a very strange adjustment to make, isn't it? And you, you said that you know, after after a few months, you you realised you you needed to to seek help, I guess, to to get some therapy to to talk mm. you through it. That is becoming much more common. Thankfully, people are reaching out a lot more. Without wishing to try and use this sofa as a as another therapy session, Paul, <laughs> just try and describe to me what you were feeling back in in March and April. It's hard to, hard to describe, really. I think you've and I've been very open about mental health when I was at the PJ. I thought it was important to me because I've 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 struggled in the past and know that being a jockey is is a when they all retire, they, they, they say they love it and they will miss it, but it's a brutal lifestyle. So I thought it was important, and we brought in you know, a really comprehensive mental health support structure for, for jockeys. But, but how I was feeling, it's kind of hard to put it into context, just in a really bad place. And through the therapy, so I'd, I'd had counselling once before, which is really where you're just getting stuff off your chest and talking to someone. Um, probably in around 2003, I'd had that. Whereas this time, I actually saw a clinical psychologist through the IJF's partnership um, with Changing Minds. And it became apparent, which I was oblivious to this, um, that they very quickly tricked diagnosing with PTSD, which has really shocked me, mm -hmm. really surprised me. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, and it, my mum died when I was 12. And it was, for me at the time, it was quite sudden looking back, it wasn't. And... You know, in 1986, you know, as a child, that was it. it. Happened, you went back to school and you got on with it. And I'd never really spoken about it with anyone at all. And certainly this time last year, if we were in a different environment, you know, I would not be able to talk about it then. And um, so the, psych the therapist, um, I had some EMDR treatment, which is eye movement reprogramming something. Um, and it's basically trying to trigger... PTSD is effectively you've got these memories that then trigger kind of physical symptoms or other symptoms, mm -hmm. and it's it's memories that haven't been parked properly in your brain. So this this therapy is trying to you're, you're operating both sides of the brain whilst imagining it and other things. Anyway, it's, it's it was an amazing experience and has really made a big difference because you can then apply it to other things to make you. Because, you know, by the time, this time last year, probably wasn't particularly nice to be around in the house and snappy with the kids and stuff like that. So I think that's improved this year, certainly. So it's just a really interesting experience, and, and I've learnt a lot from it. It's, 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 I'm glad that I asked for the help, and I think that's always the biggest thing. But as someone who'd been a big advocate for mental health and the benefits of coming forward and asking for help, it would have been pretty stupid of me not to. So I look back on, on the, the high-profile jobs you had in racing previously. So the chief executive of the Professional Jockeys Association and prior to that in a senior communications role at the BHA. If you're someone who, you know, is, 
is of a more fragile disposition, these jobs are, are really tough because no one's ever thanking you for doing them. It's very rare somebody is saying, God, that Paul Struthers, when he did that press release about the whip or whatever it is, he did a great job on that. It's pretty unforgiving stuff, isn't it? And that must have placed a big toll on you. Yeah, and I think certainly the, the, at the end of my time at the PJA, I think it was that build-up, mm. particularly over the last couple of years, as I said. I don't think it's fragility um, at all about it. it. You know, if I had some counselling in 2003 and then I've, I've seen a clinical psychologist in, in 2022, I, I, I just think I never really sought out those that kind of level of pressure. Mm. Um, it just came. There must came, be there must be a certain toughness that that is in there as well to have to have put yourself through that for so many I, years. I, I think so. I, I think you know, been brought up the right way, and have always you know really instilled in me about valuing hard work and um, certain certain characters, and you know, just a certain ethos of and ethics of how you want to operate. So it is hard working. Mm. It's trying to act with integrity and honesty and stuff. And, and you do, you know, I'd, however it ended, I, I certainly put everything into that job at the PJA. And it wasn't completely thankless. You know, it, it sometimes was. But the jockeys, you know, when you've helped jockeys, whether it's through mental health issues, whether it's because they've had a disciplinary issue, um, you know, you get a lot of gratitude for it. And it becomes incredibly rewarding that way. Um, certainly... Coming off Twitter made a massive difference. Did it, it made made it in terms of easier. I think I came off. I want to say summer 2018. It might have been summer 2019 that I came off social media, um, and that made a big difference. Not doom scrolling through people, slagging you off when I've been on your program or or whatever it was, and also um, being uh, not afraid to speak up for jockeys and a cause. You sat on your sofa and saying something on Twitter that ends up not being particularly helpful. Um, so removing that temptation and then being able to be a bit more thoughtful and learning from people like Ryan Moore, who's always been brilliant, of just, you don't have to say something all the time, Paul. You can just be quiet and speak to people behind the scenes. And there's a time and a place for both approaches. You were a very a visible chief executive of the of the PJA. I would often see you at the races. I would often read you in the in the papers. Every time there was an issue with a jockey, you would always be there to the forefront. Your successor has been significantly less visible. Do you feel that you need to be out there on the front line in that role, or are there just different ways of, of doing it? I think there are different ways of doing it. Um, whether it was because I'd had that kind of comms role at the BHA... And certainly under Nick Coward, it was very much like there was me and Robin there operating all of the comms externally mm -hmm. for the BHA, really, then. So you were the, you were the voice of the BHA, and, and we put everything out. So whether I carried that over into the PJA and took that more visible role, I also think during those 10 years when I was at the PJA, and we were, you know, and they're, they're almost all still there, some have moved on, but, you know, a brilliant team that's really dedicated and hardworking that we had a lot of things that we had to achieve mm -hmm. and we did achieve a lot of things and I think being a vocal advocate for them was really important to that. I think if, if you choose not to go down that route, I don't think it's wrong. It's just a different approach. I, my view was always it's the Jockeys Association. It's their association. You have to listen to what they want you to do 
That doesn't mean they say, we want you to do this and you jump and do it, because if you disagree with it, your job's then to try and convince them of a, of a different way of doing it. But I don't think the approach is necessarily the wrong one at all. And I see a, you know, if you maybe compare Nick Russ to Julie Harrington, they've got slightly different approaches, where Nick was always much more publicly available and, and stuff, and, and, and Julie's letting her team talk about their areas a bit more, rather than Julie doing all of the media appearances. So I th there are pluses and minuses to both approaches. I don't think one's necessarily right and the other one's wrong. I'm interested to hear... Will's view, Will's view on that, as a you know, from your corporate experience, when when you were a CEO, Will, did you feel the need to be out there in the media spotlight, or did you prefer to? I think, I think it's the <coughs> CEO's job to be um, front of house, not necessarily the chairman of an organisation. Mm. That's that that comes with the territory. Um, so definitely, I mean that that's part and parcel of uh, of leading an organisation. You are the public face of it. So David Armstrong is. Is quite front of house, isn't he? He's, oh, he is. He's, <laughs> is Julie Harrington front of house enough? Yes, I think she is. And I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll refer to my, my previous point. I mean, if you've not got the shareholders lined up and, and there's a constant dispute, it's very difficult to be front of house and talk about what you're going to do. I think Julie's in a much better spot now in terms of being front of house because we've got a plan that the stakeholders have signed up to. So it should be more straightforward for her. Paul, are, are jockeys now, post that, at landmark Robbie Dunn case. Is, is the weighing room a better place now, do you think? And has it learnt lessons from that case? I certainly can't... I've been racing once since I left, mm -hmm. one day of Cheltenham. Um, I've been in touch with a few jockeys, but, but not a lot. So I really don't know what it's like in the weighing room over the last 12 months. But it had improved <clears throat> before I'd even left. You know, that, that process had gone on for a long time. Um, and I think everyone around that process learnt a lot. And it had already improved just naturally because of it. It made people think about language. We brought in our code of conduct um, and it had been spoken about and in the press widely. So it's, it had already improved before I left. And, and I can't think for any reason why it wouldn't have kept improving. And you know, what happened was, was bad and was a, a low point for, for, for all sorts of reasons. But it wasn't institutionally an awful place. I mean, one of the things, and, and, and I know, and I saw the other day that another new facilities at a race course, I can't remember which one. You know, the facilities were, were never great at every race course, and in some race courses, really quite the opposite of great. And there have been massive changes and improvements there which will help you know i, I think environment the, the literal environment can play a factor in in how people behave and interact with each other if you're in a smart clean professional looking changing room environment i think that creates a different atmosphere and, and encourages better behavior but certainly you know, i i think it was in a much better place anyway um when i left and i'd, I'd i think if it hadn't improved we'd have read about it Talk to me about what you would have done in the last few weeks if you'd still been the chief executive of the PJA as regards the bubbling current of jockeys' complaints about the new whip regulations. I mean, you've been through this mm. more than once in more than one role. It's really hard to say what I would have done because I don't know what's been going on behind the scenes. 
So I left in December at that point. Uh, you're, intu- you're quite intuitive, though, Paul. You, you know no, that there's a... No, but unless I... Unless, literally, I haven't spoken to a jockey about the whip. I haven't spoken to anyone in the PJA team of late about it. So when I left, when I left, we put in our submission, which had been collectively signed. I'd lose, I forget the number. It was maybe 150, 200 jockeys that we, we'd sent it to all the membership to read. Mm-hmm. I think 30, and 40, 30 or 40 had helped us create that 12-page submission. I wrote it. So we'd maybe got 30 or 40 who'd been involved and signed it. We sent it to all the membership. A load read it. Since then, I've had no involvement. Now, the recommendations weren't announced until July. Mm-hmm. And then obviously it's in the last two, three weeks. So that I'm not trying to duck the issue, but what I would have done differently, I don't know, because I don't know what they've done. Um, certainly, what often happens, jockeys are day-to-day. Jockeys really are day-to-day in terms of where, where their next rides are coming from, etc., etc. So when, and I've just read it, and obviously listen to your podcast and watch television programs about it so the recommendations were announced most people seemed okay with it which i was quite surprised about that most people were okay with it the shift to the backhand position use of the crop i think was it was such a big change and the longer you've been riding the bigger the change it is i've never been an advocate for disqualification i hate it personally but i understand why some people advocate for it um and if it's literally just been since the stewards have been briefing the jockeys that they've realised, oh crikey, this is what it means come February. I can see why it would suddenly then become, oh my goodness, this is a really big issue. So then what do you do as a, as a CEO of the PJA? What can you do? Do you try and draw some sort of union-style consensus and then present it, or, or not? Try. It'd be difficult. And, and it, it was difficult when we pulled together our own submission because I know even within jockeys, and you'd get it within any stakeholder group, you will not have a consensus opinion. So there were some jockeys, there were a very small number, that advocated mm. for disqualification, and I knew they did because their view was the same as everyone else's. If you disqualify people, they'll never break the rule. I... As a former CEO of the PGA, as a communications guy, as someone who's tried to sell racing... Um, how badly will racing miss Frankie Latore? I think really badly. I will never. I, don't, I genuinely don't think we'll ever have another person like Frankie. Because, simply put, since '96 we've not. Anyway, there's, there's not been anyone come across. Um, I think it'll be. He'll, we'll miss him awfully. He's, he's really. There's maybe one or two starting to cut across, but he's the only one that's really cut across into the wider. Um, public realm, you know, and I remember I, I was working in a betting shop in Nottingham for Labrooks on Pelham Street on the day that he, the Magnificent Seven, I've never known an atmosphere like it, you know, our shop was absolutely mobbed and I, even on a Saturday you were never that busy even back then you'd have a few in there and it was literally people coming in after he'd won four, placing trebles on his last three and you can you just give me the money, he's not going to win, he's not going to get all seven and just from that point on I I know it's not as big as it used to be, but being, you know, being on Question of Sport. Mm. You know, Willie Carson had been on Question of Sport mm. when I was growing up, and then Frankie as a team captain. I did, look, I, I just hope he has a fantastic year on the track to, to kind of be a fitting end to his career, because he, he was always really easy to deal with, Frankie, and he was such an asset to the sport. Where were you when Frankie 
Road All Seven winners at Ascot. Neil Channing, good morning. I had a I had a pitch, a uh, bookmaker's pitch at Ascot, and uh, I was working for City Index as a odds compiler doing spread betting. And Jonathan Spot, the CEO, for some reason, decided that that weekend we should go on a on a bonding trip to Portugal <laughs> uh, to play golf. What a great idea! And uh, his big announcement during the weekend was that. If we could get everyone to bet on the tote swinger, that could save UK racing. Uh, I, <laughs> I said that I'd only been working there a short time. The word that I used to describe my reaction to that didn't help me to gain promotion in the company. But I did manage to avoid attending Ascot and standing on my joint and doing about 20 grand. So it was a good weekend from my point of view. A lot of people lost an awful lot of money that day, and a lot of people won an awful lot of money that day. Uh, Will Force, you're into to data and trying to understand the impact of events on on corporations. Do you think you could do an economic impact study on Frankie Dottori on British horse racing over the last three decades? What do you think he's contributed to the sport? Well, even um, even that day, bookmakers you know lost a lot of money, but the PR mm. that they got more than more than mitigated that. So, I mean, I'm glad he's doing a, a, a long lap of honour because uh, I think it'd be great for the sport. Uh, but in terms of uh, the returns to the sport through his share of personality on and off the track, <coughs> you can't put a number on it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's been incredible. And, and the body of work, and he, you know, it's very striking, he didn't really want to talk about the body of work yet because he knows it's mm. not complete. It's asking a lot to ride 18 Group 1 winners this year, but... Mm-hmm. You can bet your bottom dollar he'll have thought about it to get to 300. He'll be trying. He'll be trying. And, and look, given his role, and, and, and you saw it really almost to, it'll be to a slightly smaller level when, it, when AP announced his retirement and then had his kind of leaving tour. There'll be people trying to help him get there. Mm. Mm. Won't just be John and Thady. There'll be no. plenty of people that want to help him get to that point. And, and it did strike me, Neil, one very important point. How important, post the Gosden wobble in the middle of last year when they fell out and then yeah. half fell back in again, how important it was for him to pick up Group 1s for Balding and yeah. Beckett and internationally and yeah. have that sort of punctuated by lengthy bands but effectively golden autumn of Group 1 saying, I am still... It's allowed him to do this on his own terms. It's he's given him the licence, really. De- he's definitely someone where the bottom lip can go a little bit, I mm. think. And I think he was a bit pretty fed up at that point. Well, quite wounded it? mid-season. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And it was great to see him bounce back. That, yeah. I'm going to welcome into mm. the show um, 13 times champion trainer uh, Paul Nichols. Paul, good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Yeah, very well, thank you, Paul. Very, very well. good, Paul. Um, we need to get back to the serious business of what's, uh, of what's <laughs> happening on on Boxing Day. How's everything uh, shaping up and falling into place? Yeah, all good, yeah. And I know we've had this bad weather, but we've not missed any work with any of them. We've had no snow or ice, really. Kept everything open. So, yeah, all systems go. And in terms of the racing that we've missed, has that notably inconvenienced any any of your horses in particular that you've got to reroute and re- rethink plans for? Well, uh, you know, missing that Cheltenham uh, meeting last weekend sort of didn't help too much. Obviously, you've got to look at other races on Napa Hill in particular because um, <clears throat> it was hoping the international might have been put 
on Ascot. Of course, that was never going to happen. So he's going to have to go for the rail kill now. I don't really want to run him in the Christmas hurdle, although we might just confirm him just in case anything happens to any of the others. Uh, Outlaw Peter was going to run in the Grade 2 Novice hurdle. He'll probably now wait for the Lanzarote. All the others will run over Christmas and um, some will go to Cheltenham New Year's Day. So you've done a you've done a, a a bit of work with Brave Man's Game and Hitman, and and you were saying in a in a, a, a press conference earlier this week that you know they were they were inseparable in that work. Are they are they are they separable in your mind for this race? <laughs> they, they only did a half speed together, which I explained, and they, they weren't racing and working trying to work out. You never know if a five furlongs at home. They just finished together, did their work. They worked together quite often like that. Um, it's what happens on the course. It um, obviously determines what's what. Um, I don't think Hitman's too far behind um, Brave Man's game. Four pound on ratings, and then he's improving young horse. But um, you know he needs to improve. We're having a look at Hitman at, at Haydock, Paul. Clearly, a big step forward is required on form. Yeah. He's cantered round within his comfort zone and extended away really nicely. We know he's a, he's a he's a very very high quality horse. How would you compare him? You know, physically and mentally, as an athlete, to Brave Man's Game, how do they differ? Um, well, there's obviously a year apart. Brave Man's Game's that much stronger. Got an extra year on him, which makes a big difference. Hitman is just gradually getting where I wanted him. You know, he's got good form. He has to step up on what he's done, obviously, and what he did at Haydock. But we've sort of trained him for Boxing Day, as it were, to try and get the best out of him, to have him ready for Boxing Day. He's not unlike Clan Desabo in a lot of ways, who, you know, had okayish form when he was six and then went and won a King George when he was six, off the same sort of mark. So he's a well-capable horse. He's an unknown, going three furlongs further. Uh, I'm hoping and thinking that that might help bring out a bit of improvement. Until we do that, we don't know. Are they, are they different horses to train? I mean, how are they as, as personalities? Are very similar, but yeah, they're, they're, that's funny enough. They 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 both um, take plenty of work. They do everything together. They wouldn't do you know one. They do the same, um, and they both got plenty of speed. They work nicely. A brave man's game is a slightly bigger, stronger horse. Um, I, I think he's as good as we've ever had him looking. Um, that's a key with that horse to have him fresh and have him looking big and strong. He tends to go off a bit in the spring, which will be a challenge this year. But he couldn't be in a better place. Yeah, the, the way you talk about him, he, he is obviously one that sort of fills your eye, isn't he? He's, a, he's got a bit of <coughs> physical presence and, and a bit more heft about him. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's a big, strong horse. Um, you know, he's won at Kempton before last year, and when he's on form and the top of his game, he is very good. I think he's, his, you know, he, he's still improving physically, and I think he is, as I said earlier, the best shape we could possibly have him in. Um you know, and, and, and just hope we get a good week now and nothing goes wrong and we're there this on next Monday in, in in great shape. You've you've introduced the the narrative <clears throat> that he might be a horse who's better round a track like Kempton. Is there any obvious reason that, that that might be the case or not? Yeah, um well just he's won that on those sort of tracks really, hasn't he? He did run yeah. to be fair to him as a five year old, he ran very well at Cheltenham in a very good novice hurdle. Um you couldn't say he didn't act on the course, you couldn't blame the course from getting beat that day. He got beat by two better horses. He was immature and weak then. But we all thought that about Cordo Star until he went and won a Gold Cup. So until they actually go to Cheltenham and win or run well, everyone always say there's a doubt about it. But to be honest with you, as he matures, he travels well in a race. I don't see why Cheltenham won't be a problem over fences. Yes, he looks he looks pretty straightforward. The way he certainly the way he jumps and the way he the way he gallops. He doesn't look an unbalanced horse or an ungainly horse or a horse who can't hold a position. Well, that's what you need at Cheltenham, especially if you run in a Gold Cup, someone that does travel and jump and is quite relaxed. 
the issue there is whether you get three and a quarter miles and you stay up that hill until you actually get to that point you're never going to know. But he's the right type of horse to be successful at Cheltenham on the right day. And you did say earlier in this week that if you if you did win at Kempton, you'd go you'd go straight to the Gold Cup, which is really heartening to hear. Yeah, I'd be very keen to do that. I know the owners would. Um, you know, it's a big word in racing, but if we were to be lucky enough to win next week and he, he, he's at the top of his game, as it were, um, I think I'd like to go to Cheltenham with him and, you know, hope on the ground's not too bad on the Thursday and he definitely wouldn't run before we get him fresh. We learned our lesson with him last year. We know how to deal with a few little issues with him and I'd try and get him in his best possible shape. So it would be nice and it would be a challenge to do that and get him right for Cheltenham. You say you learned your lesson last year. Is it you, you banged a run into him, didn't you, in a handicap at Newbury, yeah. is that right? I think it was more dietary problems we had with him last year as much. And he, after entry, he found he had very bad ulcers, grade four ulcers, as did stage stuff and enough. And we don't know quite now why why that was, but that makes him underperform. And he just didn't run his race at all. But it's been a bit of a story of him in the past, really. Um, so, you know, we just, it's like with these horses, you never stop learning about them. So I think we're on top of him now. Um, he looks in a good place. He's, he's thriving physically, as you'll see next week. So we just need to, if, if we do go well at Kempton and we go to Cheltenham, we've try, got to try and get him in that sort of shape. Paul, you tweeted a picture yesterday morning, which was a very welcome sight. Bryony Frost riding out um, yesterday at your place. And she, uh, of course, won the King George two years ago on, on Frodon. Is she going to be um, fit and ready to ride him on Boxing Day? I've got no doubt. She's going to pass some tests tomorrow, I think. But she rode four lots out yesterday, including Frodon. And, I mean, he's not the easiest ride at home. He was pulling and tearing with her and fresh as paint. He's actually in really good shape, and as we know, he likes Kempton. Um, and um, yeah, you never know with him; he keeps on surprising, and um, he's well capable of being in the mix. Obviously, uh, of course, last year it didn't pan out tactically for you because you, you had you know, San Calvados make that massive move coming coming in for the for the third last, which undid him and probably undid. Undid Frode on again. I, I dare say you'll be instructing the riders not to make those same mistakes again. It was one of those races of Frode on and um, Manella Indu went flat out from the start. It just, I don't know, it's one of those races. I don't know how the form ever worked out, how it, how it did, but it's not always like that. They'll have all done that lesson. Obviously, Clan's not running. Brave Man's a game. Hitman are quite straightforward horses to ride, and Frode on can, can make it. Or, or just sit in a little bit. You wouldn't want to be... You One thing with Frodon, you don't need to be bursting him over the first three or four. If they're going too quick, you just get a lead and let it jump and take you into the race. So it's going to be smallest field. We'll just see what's what. I dare say there'll be plenty of pace. They're all in a good race like that. But, you know, our three can can, can just slot in wherever they're happy. And, Paul, the, the obvious dangers are either Venetia's L'Empresse or Henry de Bromhead's Envoy Allen, who was back to form at Dan Royal last time. Um, which do you see as the as the biggest threat to your team? Um, Lompress is obviously a very smart horse. He's got good form. He's won three times right-handed, so I don't see the track being a problem. He obviously would like it on the slower side, perhaps, but he's a smart horse when he's right. And Envoy Allen, yeah, he was very good at down rule as well. He probably will have to take a step forward, but he's a smart horse. And I wouldn't be surprised Colin Chizard's horse, Eldorado Allen, ran very nicely as well. Mm-hmm. I think the track will suit him. He, he's got good form. He, he, you know, he won a Denman chase last year. Um, if the ground wasn't too bad, he could be a bit of a surprise package, actually. Paul, have you got Joe's one for sorry. us? Have you, have you got one for us for the Christmas money? Um, <laughs> no, there's a, there'll I'm be a sneaky one at Wing Council. McFabulous. <laughs> Let's say, yeah, well, why not McFabulous in the in Star Novice Chase? You know, he, 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 he always, um, performs nicely around Kempton, loves a flat track. He, he must go well.